Wow, wasn't that good? Amen. As we said in weeks gone by, the, the lyrics of the song we sing, it's not just there to, to stir an emotion. It's not just there to make us feel nice. Some of this stuff we're declaring, or all of this stuff we declare and we'd hope as Liz painstakingly goes through all the lyrics of our songs and our worship. He's declaring truth. And the act of declaring that, and I think audibly as well, really does shift something in the atmosphere. And I think oftentimes, maybe if you've never been to church before, you're not familiar with this kind of setting. When you walk into a building like this, you can feel something tangible. Do you know what I mean? You ever had that, whether it's your first time or your thousandth time, something shifts in the atmosphere. And I believe that the Celtic Christians used to call it thin places, thin places, places where for decades, for generations, this building's over 150 years old, it's always been a church. Week by week, maybe even in times you don't even know about in the week where staff team are coming in and people are coming in this building, just sowing their prayers to God. I really believe it makes those thin places and shifts in the atmosphere. We'll be talking a little bit about that in the moment, but thank you so much, Al and the team, Liz and the guys. Uh, we're so blessed here at LCF. And I think obviously being fairly new here, two years, something that uh, I've done coming here is being able to see things with fresh eyes. And when you've been here 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 70 years, like some of you mentioning no names or looking at certain people, uh, you just get familiar with it. It's really easy to get familiar to certain settings. But we have something so special here in the act of worship. I believe God has not only blessed us with talented people, but has graced this church here, Luton Christian Fellowship in Luton and now beyond by way of the web to bless people with our worship. So why don't we just give it up for our worship team and Liz and the guys one more time. Amazing. Okay, so let's dive into where we're going today. Obviously, the past two weeks, we have been in this identity campaign, looking at some of the foundational, fundamental truths of what it means if you call yourself a follower of Jesus to find your identity in him. Week one, we looked at what it means to belong to the family of God, to be adopted as sons and daughters. Last week, we looked at what it means to be a citizen of heaven, all of its cultures and its structures, as opposed to being a citizen of the earth. And this week, what I want to do is almost merge those two together and go somewhere else. Now, as Becky and I were sitting and planning the year 2021, it was Becky who said it'd be really, really good in September to look at this whole theme of identity. It's when we come back from our summer holidays, we get back into the daily life of things. And it's this time that would be really good. Uh, she felt to just remind ourselves of our identity and what that means. And as I was sitting there trying to plan out my messages as I do in advance, prayerfully, of course, listening to what I think God wants to say to us as the church, the whole subject of work and occupation came to my mind, what we do. And when I say occupation, you may be sitting here thinking, well, I don't work. I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm a stay-at-home parent, which, by the way, I think is a far more difficult job than 99% uh, of, of jobs. I get one day a week at home with my little girl, who's about two and a half. And goodness me, I can't wait till sort of four or five o'clock where Becky comes in from the church office and I can hand her over. It is so difficult, especially when we're potty trained at the moment. We've got a few suspect stains. She's doing very, very well, but it's hard. Or maybe you're not a stay-at-home parent, but you're retired. And maybe you've put in your graft, you've worked for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and now you're a man or woman of leisure. But maybe your occupation is gardening. Maybe if you're like my granddad, you like making models. You like making ships and tanks. But when I say occupation, I'm not just talking about what you're paid to do. I'm saying what you occupy your time with, which where I think, if I look at the etymology of the word, the root meaning of the word occupation, that's what it means. What do we occupy our time with? 
And actually, over here in Western culture, in the UK, in America, in Europe, I think what we do plays a huge part in who we are. And actually, for a lot of us, a lot of our identity is tied up in our work, our occupation, as I said, whether that is paid or unpaid. And I wonder if you would go with me for a minute, just think in your minds and go back to the last time you found yourself in a social setting where you had to meet someone new. I'm not talking at a business meeting. I'm not talking about, you know, going to somewhere planned that you know everyone. I'm talking about somewhere where you find yourself in a maybe uncomfortable situation where you have to force conversation with people you've never met. Now, I was thinking about this this week and I found, and I think I'm correct in saying that 99% of the time, there's two questions that every single one of us ask in these settings. Now, for me, in my season of life, as I said, I've got three young children, two are school age. And the time when I meet most new people outside of what I do my day to day, which has been a pastor here at church, is on the school playground or the dreaded school birthday parties. You know, when your child comes home with an invitation and I'm always really, really quick to try and give that invitation over to Becky and Becky, right, you're going to deal with this. Because although I, I, I do this on a stage for, you know, part of my week and I speak to people, I'm actually by nature really, really introverted and really shy. It's quite easy at church to talk to people because for the most part, you who come to church will know who I am and what I do. You see, outside of the church bubble, I am a nervous wreck. I literally hide behind Becky's skirt because I don't know what to do myself. Now, I absolutely love getting to know people. Uh, It's part of my heart as a pastor. I just love to hear people's stories and getting to know them. What I absolutely hate and detest because it makes me a quivering wreck is breaking the ice to start that conversation. So these these two questions that I am proposing, probably all of us will ask, have been a bit of a lifesaver for me. And I want to take you to a kid's birthday party where all the parents are sort of shoved in a corner. And it's almost like what I would call reverse babysitting, okay? Because the kids sort of look over at their parents, like, bless them, look at them trying to get along. They're over there doing business on the slides and the bouncy castles. And the parents, and some of these guys can be like top CEOs, are literally like quivering wrecks. Something like this picture, they're all sat in the corner, not really knowing what to do. Now, thank goodness for people like Becky who will just walk in a room and light it up and can talk to anyone. I am one of the people like this just sat there. And the questions that we always guess is, number one, oh, so what's your name? And number two is, so uh, what do you do? What do you do? And isn't that interesting? Because I think before we ask about what people enjoy and what their passion is, we ask them what they do. What's your job? What do you occupy your time with? What is it you go into the world to do Monday to Friday, generally between nine and five, although that's changed a little bit this past year. But what do you do? And I think culturally that shows so much of where we are because so much of our identity and our affirmation is in what we do in our work. And I'm sure you have been guilty, like I have been guilty, in measuring people up and their worth according to what they do. And I found it myself as I'm talking to people and, and, you know, finding out what they do in their day to day. I'm trying to rank, well, what does that mean for them in society? Where are they placed in society? How much worth do they bring to us? Oftentimes when I say I'm a vicar or a reverend, people think I'm joking. And when I tell them, then I'm serious, that's what I do in my day to day. Straight away, there's all sorts of cultural stereotypes of what they think I do. First question I generally get asked after that is, oh, do you wear a dress on Sundays? <laughs> I said, only if, you know, the occasion calls for it and I feel like it. No, I don't. I don't wear a dress. I don't wear a dog collar. You know, fashion's a whole different world these days, isn't it? But no, I don't. 
But we rank people and we dictate their worth, I think subconsciously and consciously sometimes, in what they do. And these two questions, I think, have always played out in human society and culture. However, in generations gone by, I think it's having a bit of a, a makeover and a facelift. You see, 100 years ago, you wouldn't ask, what is your name and what do you do? You would ask something else. And I pose this, you will know by now, I'm a bit of a film lover, particularly films of the 80s and early 90s. There's a brilliant film from 1990 called Kindergarten Cops. Anyone ever seen it with Arnie? And there's a really famous line in that film, and you would have seen memes, and the memes still circulate today on social media, of this one line, which is actually really poignant. And it's Arnie sitting in this class as an undercover FBI agent, and he's trying to find this criminal mastermind who's the father of one of the kids. So what he does, he does this exercise, and he asks the kids, who is your daddy? I won't try and do the accent. I won't try and do the accent. (laughs) Who is your daddy, and what does he do? Who is your daddy and what does he do? And actually, I find this quite a significant question for us as Christians, those of us who would call ourselves Jesus followers. Who is your daddy and what does he do? As I said 100 years ago, if you asked the question, what is your name and what do you do? You probably would have looked a little bit confused. Well, what do you mean, what do I do? I do what my mum does or my dad does. I'm in the family business. You see, up until the time of the Industrial Revolution, Family businesses, family culture, family trade would run completely through grandfather, son, uh, son to son to son, daughter to mother, all the way down. You'd specialise in one family business. Now, of course, with the introduction of school systems, mandatory school systems exams, nowadays you can literally almost be anything you want to be, apart from maybe royalty unless you marry into it. But you can be anything you want to be. Even in Jesus' time, they didn't ask Jesus who he was. There's an instance where Jesus is in Nazareth and he's preaching and teaching and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? See, even the son of God was known by what his dad did. And actually, interestingly, as the story goes on, Jesus hints at his patronage and his paternal lineage because he says the son can only do what he sees the father doing. The The son was sent by the father and he does exactly what the father does. And even here, as I said, 150 years ago, 100 years ago in the UK, more often than not, 99% of the time, you would do what your dad or your mother did. And I'm talking about our identity being so interwoven into our occupation and work. And we see this even in some of our surnames. You will see here a list behind me and it will come up on the screen for you at home if you're watching some family business identity surnames. And you'll notice some surnames even in our church. Smith, Potts or Potter, Cooper, Mason, Taylor, Slater, Miller, Baker, Clark, Skinner, Gardner, Turner, Sawyer, Whitbread, all these names that many of us carry actually originated from what our parents or our family did. So our identity is completely tied up, I believe, a lot in our work. And that can be healthy, but also really unhealthy as well. You see, first and foremostly, as we've explored and stressed these past two weeks, our identity is and must always be first and foremostly in who Jesus says we are. Absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. But actually looking at this whole concept of family business and occupation and work, I want to pose this morning that all of us who will call ourselves Christians are called to a family business. There is a family business when it comes to Christianity. As I said last week, we cannot earn our salvation. We have stressed this now for three weeks. We cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn what Jesus did for us. But it doesn't mean there's no effort. It's hard sometimes to be a Christian. 
especially in the world we live at today, because it is so countercultural to what is affirmed and accepted in our society. But I want to pose, and I, I really want to stress actually, that when we're saved, we're not just saved from something, we're also saved to something and for something. By that, I mean we're not just saved, as we looked last week, from the kingdom of the earth into the kingdom of heaven. We're not just saved from an old identity into a new identity, which we absolutely are, but we're also saved for something as well. And I want to explore for maybe 15, 20 minutes that four thing that we are saved for. And I want to suggest it is the family business. So if you want a title for this morning, if you're a note taker, my title is The Family Business. Now, I nearly put a slide of the Godfather up, but I didn't know how accepted that would be in church. So I'll just say, because when I think of the family business, I think of Don Corleone talking to his family. And again, there's a really famous quote in that movie, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, you see, this is almost what Jesus did for us. Because of what he did for us, he doesn't ask us to do anything in return. But like Paul in the gospel, in the, in the epistle, sorry, Paul says, I am just compelled to do something because of what Jesus did. You see, church, when you get a revelation of what Jesus is doing and has done and will do for you, you your only response is to be, as he says in Romans 12, 1, to be a, a living witness, a living sacrifice to his work. So what is a family business? Maybe if you were really serious about following Jesus this morning, you're panicking a little bit because you're on a really good wage and a really good job and you're thinking, oh my goodness, does this mean I'm going to have to sack it all in, go to Bible college and become a preacher? Or maybe worse than that, goodness me, does it mean I'm going to have to be a missionary to the furthest corners of the earth? Does it mean I have to be a nun or a monk? Does it mean my church attendance needs to go up a bit? Does it mean I need to go to every Monday night abide? Yes, it's... No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but all good and noble professions, if you want to do that, you're called to that. Absolutely amazing. But what Jesus isn't asking you to do to come into the family business is to give up your occupation. I believe what Jesus asks you to do is absolutely tied up in your work, in your occupation. As I said, whether that is paid or unpaid, what you find doing in your day to day, I believe Jesus has blessed and ordained. So let's get a picture of what the family business is. And again, we're going to do what we did last week, because if you were here last week, you would have heard a snippet of it. So just for a reminder, we're going to jump back in our DeLorean and go back to the beginning of the beginning. Do you remember that last week? We looked at Adam and Eve in the garden and we looked at them giving up their heavenly citizenship foolishly, unwittingly and taking up citizenship in the earth. And the very first thing that God did, we said last week in Genesis 128, uh, sorry, is he blessed them. He made Adam and Eve and then he breathed his life into them. The very first thing, I love this picture, is he began to bless them. I can see him outstretching his hand and just speaking life and purpose into their identity and what he was calling them to do. And God blessed them and he said to them, look at this, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over every living thing. And as we said last week, that meant going out of Eden and extending the borders of Eden. But of course, Genesis 3, it all went Pete Tong. The enemy got in, he changed it, he switched it up and essentially the commission was paused. But what's really, really important about that verse in Genesis 1.28 is the commission, that first commission that God gave to Adam and Eve wasn't a commission solely for Adam and Eve. I believe it was a commission for all humanity. 
talking about family businesses passing down from generation to generation to generation. I believe, church, for those of us who have taken up citizenship in heaven, called to the family business, this is our same commission. But as I said, as Adam and Eve messed it up, I've got a few words to say to Adam when we get to heaven, but we'll leave that there. When he messed it up, that commission was paused. And for millennia, for generations, it stayed on pause. And then, of course, we see this miraculous thing happen called the incarnation, which basically is a fancy word for saying God got dressed up in some skin and he came to earth. We know him as Jesus Christ. And actually, when Jesus went out into the world and he began to preach and he began to do these miraculous things, just imbibed with the presence and power of God, what Jesus was doing was essentially pressing play on the commission that was paused in Eden. Are you still with me? So he was going out into a hostile world. This same commission now has been reinvigorated and pushed up in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is now extending the borders of the heavenly kingdom in a hostile world, namely earth. So when Jesus walked out and he faced sickness and he faced death and he faced demonic opposition, what did he do? He extended the kingdom of heaven in that situation. He changed things. The, the brokenness of the structure, the brokenness of the culture, the fallenness of our attitudes and our thought processes, Jesus came and corrected. And just before Jesus went back up to heaven, taking off his skin almost in his new skin, this new body, this new creation, that we are also promised church if we believe in him, he gave what is called the Great Commission. Now this wasn't altogether different from the first commission, it had just updated its terms and conditions. But what is really interesting about this condition is he reinstated the commission from Adam and Eve and he gave it to his disciples. And I can imagine his disciples gathering round him and just listening with rapt attention as he says these words in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, says this. And then Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what's essentially happening here, church, is God is reinstating the plan that was paused. His plan never changed. And actually, we have the amazing ability to go to the end of time, the end of the book, go to Revelation. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, it's an exact mirror of Genesis 1 and 2. It's God reinstating. It's a really, really big circle. But God is calling us and he's commissioning us to go out into the world in the family business, because this is what it is, reinstate the culture, the structures and the systems of heaven in a fallen and broken world. And as I said, God didn't just save us from something, he saved us for something. And we can't earn our salvation, but it does require effort. And I know people think that being a Christian is like this airy-fairy, floaty thing where we talk about unicorns and rainbows and we're always happy. And that's a stereotype of what people think when they think of Christians. But actually being a Christian is really difficult. It does require a lot of effort. If you read Jesus' most famous sermon in Matthew 5 to 7 called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to do some really difficult things, completely countercultural. It's bringing the systems of heaven into a fallen world and we are literally told to swim against the tide, the tide. And if you've got time this week, I would love you to read that because it will just really, I think, give us the, the understanding of the responsibility we have been called to in the family business as citizens of heaven. And Paul takes this even a little bit further. So we've got the Great Commission happening in Matthew 28. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, in the same, ver- in the same vein, in these verses, verses 19 to 20. Look at this. He said, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He wasn't counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. So what Jesus was doing in the Gospels, we are now being told we need to do here on earth. with This message of reconciliation. We are therefore, look at this word, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, listen to that language, we are asking you desperately on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what is the family business, you may ask? The family business is to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You are called to be an ambassador in a foreign nation, in a foreign world. An ambassador propagating the systems, the cultures and the structures of heaven here on earth that is completely opposed to what God would have in place. This is what Google defines as an ambassador. After the Bible, Google is really, really helpful, okay? It says this, an ambassador is an an accredited diplomat. That means being given all authority as Jesus gave to us. An accredited diplomat sent by a state to represent its policies, its interests and its national identity in a foreign country. Wow. See, some of you might be applying for jobs at the moment. Obviously, with the way the world is, all sorts of things have happened where jobs have just become so hard to come by and some things that were so important now have taken a completely back seat. And maybe your CV is looking a little bit thin. It will add a little bit of sparkle if you put on the end of that from the day you became a Christian, I'm an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. Now, all jokes aside, that's a little bit twee, but that is exactly what we are called to, church. You might think, well, I'm not important enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I don't know the Bible that well. I barely know the worship songs. I can't be an ambassador of Christ. Well, actually, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is whose you are that determines what you do. It's not what you do who determines who you are. Essentially, what I'm telling you, church, is that you are bivocational. You might work full time in one position or another, but actually you have two jobs. And vocation, I think, is a beautiful word that sums up so much to what Jesus calls us to. You see, I once heard it said like this by my old pastor. Your occupation is generally what you're paid to do, but your vocation is what you are made to do. You might be paid to do something that you absolutely hate, but that's not your vocation. You might do something just to pay the bills. Actually, if we can look through a heavenly perspective, Colossians 3, 1 to 2 tells us to look to the things of the heaven and not the things of the earth. If you look through those glasses, you will know, church, that what you are doing in your day-to-day isn't necessarily your purpose. For some people, a small percentage of us, what we love and what we crave to do is actually our occupation as well, but we're still called to a vocation. So actually, church, our occupation is a vehicle to live out your vocation. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you're a shelf stacker in Tesco's or Asda or Aldi or Lidl. That's your occupation. But actually, you have been sent by heaven into that workplace, into that place to be an ambassador, your vocation for Jesus. Have you ever thought of it like that? My job here is to pastor the people of LCF. Your job might be to pastor the staff team of Lidl. You see, pastors isn't just something that happens in church. We are ministers who equip people to service in the kingdom of God. I believe my primary function isn't standing here telling you what to do from the Bible. My job, I believe, is to help equip you and inspire you to go and pastor the people in your world. 
Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know you're a pastor? Turn to your second choice neighbour, say, I say the best till last, don't worry. And don't worry, you don't have to wear a dress. Okay. But seriously, if you're in Tesco, if you're in Lidl, if you're in a doctor's surgery, if you work for a company, if you have a little bitty, bitty tiny IT block in a massive room full of people, you might hate it, you might despise it, you might love it. Either way, your vocation is to be an ambassador of Jesus. Your vocation, your calling, what you are made to do is to bring kingdom culture down from heaven into your world. Your family places, your friendships, your workstations, the petrol station where you stop to get petrol, you are called to be an ambassador. Now here is what an ambassador isn't. And I think we have really watered it down uh, to make it easier for ourselves. We're really good at that. We like to make life easy. An ambassador isn't just saying to someone, oh, by the way, I had a really good weekend. I went to church because my Christian go red in the face and walk away. You ever done that and you almost feel, okay, I've done my job this week. I've told someone I'm a Christian. That's not what being an ambassador is. An ambassador is literally to embody and imbibe the customs, the cultures, the structures of the state that sent you, namely heaven. You see, when an ambassador comes over, say, from uh, Nigeria, the United States, from Ghana and sets up in London at their embassy, their primary purpose is to propagate the interests of Nigeria, Ghana or the United States here in London. It doesn't mean popping up to Boris and saying, hi, I'm the, uh, I'm the ambassador of Nigeria and running away like with a girlish giggle, because that's often what we do, church, isn't it? I'm a Christian. <laughs> that's, not what, that's not what I'm called to do. We're called to take kingdom culture into those places. Beautiful verse in the Bible, in Mark. I think it's, I think it's Mark, don't quote me, I think it's Mark 5.19. I think, don't quote me. And when Jesus goes out, he sends the disciples. He says, this is what I want you to do, guys. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to preach the gospel and signs will follow. Signs will follow, really important. Now, of course, I believe predominantly Jesus is talking there of miracles. He says, you've watched, guys, what I've done. You've watched how I've done it. You've watched me go out and open blind eyes, open ears, even raise people from the dead. And I'll give you now all authorities, Matthew 28, says 18 to 20, all authority to go and do the same. Go, shoot them. Now, I absolutely believe, hand on heart, that the miraculous, the supernatural is part of our kingdom culture and happens today. I have seen healings. I've seen people set free physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. But I believe that isn't the only purpose. That is a demonstration of the kingdom, but it's not the only purpose of being an ambassador. You see, when we talk about the culture of heaven, it's not just about the miraculous. It's also doing everything else that Jesus and Paul through his letters commands Christians to do. It's about being people of love and mercy and generosity and forgiveness. It's about clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, going and being with the sick. It's about encouragement. It's about leadership. It's about gentleness, meekness, kindness. It's about all these fruits of the spirit that Jesus has has taught to us about and commanded us to live. So you might think, well, I can't be an ambassador because I can't remember the last time I prayed for a a blind person and their eyes open and a deaf person and their ears open. Well, that's not the case of the kingdom of heaven that's a demonstration of it but so much so in the everyday ordinariness of our days I believe that is where kingdom is demonstrated it's about people stopping and thinking goodness me that is really different to what I'm used to that grace that was shown 
that mercy that was shown, that favour that was shown. I didn't deserve that, but they have given me this. See, when we think of you know, people being sent, we think of a couple in our church who are here, I won't mention them to embarrass them, who go out with a team from our church every Saturday on the streets and they talk to people and they evangelise. And it's not standing on a soapbox screaming, turn or burn. It is like this. It is gentle. It is relational. It is personable. It is about mercy and gifts and generosity and kindness and love. This is what it means, church, to be an ambassador. Not just saying I'm a Christian. Sometimes that could be more damaging because a lot of the time we don't act like Christians, do we? Well, I don't want to go to church if that's what it's like. It's about embodied, embodying, imbibing kingdom culture. And what I love about the Great Commission is Jesus doesn't say, if you're called to be an evangelist, go. If you're called to be a pastor in full-time vocational paid ministry, go. If you're called to be an apostle, go. If you're called to be a teacher, go. He says, all of you have been given all authority to go. So we're all told to go, but I believe we all go differently. I think of it like this. If now we asked 50 people from our church to get to London tomorrow at 9am, I doubt all of us would go the same way because all of our starting ports will be different. Some of you might live in Stopsley, some Bushmeat. Some might live up in Amptill or Barton. Some might live up in Hightown. You'd start differently. Some might not even get in a car, they might get on a train. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. When he's calling you to go, he's not saying you have to go like this and get off at junction 10 and go down the M1 and then get off at this junction and take this A road. Jesus just says go, there's so much freedom in that. And what you will find is so many of us, church, are completely, I believe, nonplussed and don't realise the gifting and the kingdom gifts we carry in our lives. So often we can't tell ourselves what our own gifting is and what our own talents are. Really interestingly, your best friend and your mum will be able to tell you what your giftings and talents are. If you're allowed, don't ask your best friends. They won't tell you what your giftings and talents are. They will just rib you, okay? But girls, ask your mum. She'll tell you. Boys, ask your grandparents. They'll tell you. You might be gifted not to stand up and preach a three-point sermon, but you might be gifted to be really generous. You don't see that as a gifting. Goodness me, that's a gifting. Not everyone's generous. Or being kind or showing leadership or showing unfavourable mercy that no one else can show. That might be your gifting. So in your commission to go, what Jesus has done, I believe he uses our personality traits, our characteristics and our gifting to enable us to go. Look at this again. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16, talking to the same church, he's telling their ambassadors. And I believe they are sort of having this same sort of identity crisis. They don't realise what they are called to. And he says, guys, don't you realise, don't you know, listen to that language, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple inhabiting the Spirit of God? He is dwelling in your midst. So the nervousness, the the anticipation, the sweats that break out when you're feeling guilty because you haven't been ambassador, you don't need to do it in your own strength. The Spirit of God is within you. He is calling you. He is empowering you. He is giving you the ability to stand up and imbibe in the kingdom culture structures of heaven on earth through the power of His Spirit. And just as a close and the band are coming back, there's one more thing that I would love to just touch on when it comes to ambassadors. And this could probably be a whole sermon uh, by itself, but I've spoken too much over this past month and you need a break. And we need to get Olivia in and Becky in the next couple of weeks to give you a break from my beautiful Brummie accent. But just a quick point. An ambassador. As I mentioned earlier, Ghana, Nigeria, the United States, the ambassadors come over completely empowered with, again, all authority of their kingdom, their state, their government, their king or queen, their monarchy. And what they do when they get to London, they don't rent out an Airbnb. 
They don't look for somewhere with a nice view and, and pay a fee each, each week or each month. They are given an embassy. What's an embassy? If you didn't know again, after the Bible, let's go to Google. An embassy is the official residence, I love this, or offices of an ambassador. And this is the, the bigger definition. The embassy and its entire grounds are considered to belong to that country which sent them, which is why they can be used for sanctuary and why diplomatic immunity is such good protection. See, what we're learning here about embassies is if you go over the threshold of the embassy of Nigeria in London, as soon as you step foot over that threshold, all the laws, customs and structures of the United Kingdom in that moment cease to exist. In that one step, you are literally crossing national borders. In the Nigerian embassy, the Nigerian culture, customs, law and government reign supreme. And the ambassador of the chair of that embassy has the power to give you diplomatic immunity. Which means if you've done something really naughty and you want to escape and you're a citizen of Nigeria, you better hot foot it and go over quick to that embassy because there you'll be protected until they could sort it out properly. Now here's where I want to go with this. You can see the picture, can't you? as citizens of heaven and more than that, as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, where your home is and your offices are, where you reside, you put your head down to sleep and you go into work, that has been commissioned and appointed by and with the kingdom of heaven. We see, don't we, in Exodus, famously, Moses coming to the burning bush and taking off his shoes because he's on holy ground. I wonder as you go home today and you, you get told off if anything if you're anything like me by your wife for wearing shoes in the lounge, quickly get your shoes off. You're not just doing it to keep the carpet clean, you're doing it because where you're standing is holy ground. Commissioned, appointed by the kingdom of heaven. As I said, when you go into that office cubicle and you Monday morning, you're getting your coffee down your neck to wake you up and perk up. Well, wake up because you're on kingdom ground. Your home, your office, holy ground. I love that picture. I wonder if we could go out in that attitude this week as we're thinking about what we do for a living. Maybe we're between careers at the minute. We're thinking, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Well, actually, you've already been commissioned into the family business. If you're a citizen of heaven, if you're an adopted son or daughter of God, you have been given a calling, a vocation and purpose. As I said, that will look completely different in how it's outplayed for all of us. You might be standing on a platform doing a Bible study. You might be down on Luton Town Centre on a Saturday with some of the guys just talking to people, meeting them where they're at. It might be a long conversation with a friend or a colleague just about the situations they are finding themselves in and they can't see a way out. Well, kingdom culture can bring something to that. It might be through art or poetry or dance and God has just imbued you with this amazing gift of the creativity. Well, that's part of ambassadorship as well. You see, we've got it in our heads, church, in the 21st century that to tell people about Jesus is a three-point sermon. It's an it's a in-your-face demonstration of what the Bible says. That is part of it, but only a small part of it. Telling people about Jesus is living your life, again, as Romans 12:1 says, as a living sacrifice. It's embodying all that Jesus taught and gave us and demonstrated and releasing it into our local contacts, wherever you may find yourself. We're going to sing this song now. Steve's going to lead us. And then at the end of that song, Becky's going to come up and she's going to commission us into our family business this week. And, and if you're already doing this and you're living out kingdom culture in your day to day, I want to implore you because it's blooming hard sometimes to do it. Well done. 
And if you're not, sometimes you have good days and bad days like we all do, it's absolutely fine. But this week, let's put on this filter that actually, even if the job I'm going to is hard, even if I'm changing the fifth nappy of the day and I feel it's just so difficult, you are called in that situation to be an ambassador of God. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Mm-hmm.